0: Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and today I'm speaking with Chris Joy, the founder and managing director of Coolabar Capital that we've spoken to previously on the podcast. Those that enjoy listening to Chris will recognise his very forthright opinions and the strong conviction and the fact that a lot of them have actually panned out to be exactly as stated by Chris. Uh, Today in this episode, we talk about the coronavirus, uh, the current housing market and the outlook in Australia, uh, GFC Mark II, what may cause it, and credit markets, the state of the economy in general, as well as getting into a topic that Chris has been very vocal on in terms of the commissions paid on LICs and LITs to brokers and advisors. Please remember this podcast isn't designed nor is it specific advice to any people to buy a specific asset. We encourage people to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and to seek advice before purchasing any investments. Please remember to send me your feedback and suggestions. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Chris Joy, welcome back to Inside the Rope. Thank you for having me. Uh, Chris, I thought we might kick off. There's been a bit of news uh, recently um, in terms of transaction between Coolabah, the organisation you founded, and Pinnacle. I thought you might be able to talk to that transaction, what it means, <coughs> and, and, and why you <coughs>
1: entered into it. Yeah, sure. Um, I set up the business in 2011. Uh, we run about $4.5 billion, um, across active credit strategies. Um, we run actually about uh, more than a dozen different strategies um, from very very low risk uh, portfolios to higher returning portfolios. so in the 12 months to January <coughs> we've had strategies that have done uh, net fees um, you know, um, circa 3.3 percent cash plus strategies, strategies uh, like our HBID active hybrid ETF product on the ASX that did almost I think seven percent net of fees our Longshore Credit Fund, uh, which did um, around 7%, just slightly north of the 7% net of fees, um, through to our Active Composite Bond Strategy, which did 13%. Um, we <coughs> had 25% of the business that was held, so the staff owned 75%. I have 11 analysts, five portfolio managers, and Angela Bennett, an iron ore billionaire, um, back in 2015 bought a quarter of the business, um, and <clears throat> what actually happened was I was approached by Hamish Douglas at Magellan about buying into the business, and that kind of kick-started chain reaction. We were approached by Rob Adams at Perpetual, Pengana, um, a lot of good guys, very impressive guys. And then we were also approached by Ian McCowan, the CEO of Pinnacle. And the thing that appealed to us about Pinnacle was, in contrast to <coughs> those other parties, Pinnacle have 15 fund managers. They've started from scratch 12. Um, so they know what it's like to begin a new business. Uh, they've got over $60 billion under management, um, and there was just a really, really good cultural fit, so we kind of selected Pinnacle. Excellent. Exciting times going
0: forward. Uh, turning <coughs> back to sort of investment markets and the business uh, you're in, um, how are you seeing the market at the moment? Of course, uh, everyth- everything in the headlines seems to be de-
1: dominated by coronavirus. Yeah, I'm actually looking at my Bloomberg terminal right now, but um, <clears throat> it's very volatile, um, very interesting. Great opportunities. Uh, we've seen uh, US equities fall 13%. Um, they've bounced back about six. Um, and we did a lot of heavy duty DD on the coronavirus um, in late February. Um, a pretty catastrophic shock, frankly, to markets. We saw liquidity vaporise um, the high yield market, the high yield corporate bond market, was absolutely smoked. Uh, credit spreads jumped <coughs> about 150 basis points, um, you know, inflicting massive capital losses on high yield bonds. We also saw the credit spreads on hybrids jump about 90 basis points. Um, so, in some of those markets, that can be a very attractive sort of opportunity. Uh, for us, with Corona. Um, we were of the view that it wasn't clear whether China had contained, and the test cases were South Korea and Italy. If they could contain, um, then we felt markets could move forward. But midway through the final week of Feb, it became clear that they weren't containing, um, and we arrived at the judgement that central banks would very aggressively intervene, slash rates, start QE, plus we'd get fiscal stimulus. Um, We actually went long duration uh, when the uh, probability of an RBA rate cut (coughs) in March was priced at just 15%, um, which is very unusual for us because we actually don't trade duration. um, But we thought that was a good hedge against adversity. And they cut, obviously, 25 (coughs) um, uh, in their first meeting in March. Then we saw the Fed cut 50 Overnight, we've seen the Bank of Canada cut 50, the ECB will probably uh, ramp up QE, (coughs) and um, the Bank of England uh, will likely cut. So, I think you're seeing right now a battle between the central banks and the virus. Uh, For us, okay, you can, you know, Hamish Douglas has argued, I think, at some point, this is a temporary shock, (coughs) and you can look through it. The problem with that is. Markets can't cope with pricing the risk of a global pathogenic pandemic. And it was clear to us that markets were failing. So we, um, when we spoke to central banks and governments, uh, and I spoke to the Prime Minister about this, you know, our uh, argument was the RBI needed to move hard and fast <coughs> and fiscal policy also needed to stimulate. The government's been running a balanced budget and the whole purpose of that was to create Um, fiscal space to support the economy in an emergency like this, which is uh, I think what they'll do. So I actually think that for us, (coughs) you've basically had an air gap or a liquidity gap between now and when we get a vaccine uh, and between now and when we get an effective antiviral drug. So they're talking 12 months away, right? Well, um, our analysis suggests Gilead Sciences drug, (coughs) which is meant to be effective, Um, the human trials will be completed in late April. And I think that'll be available uh, within uh, a few months. The Israelis claim they'll have a a vaccine ready in about 120 days. (coughs) And um, I think the Chinese are gonna surprise. I haven't read this anywhere, but our internal prediction is the Chinese are gonna surprise with an early vaccine. Um, probably in the next six to nine months. But yeah, conservatively, uh, let's assume it's 12 plus. So what does that mean for markets? Um, Well, it's really about what the central banks do and don't do. Uh, I think if the central banks are aggressive, (coughs) the Feds cut 50, they're likely to cut another 50 in March. So in a couple of weeks. The RBA's 85% priced (coughs) to cut to 25 BIPs in April. Mm-hmm. I think the RBA is going to start QE. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of stimulus from the fiscal side globally. Mm-hmm. So I think if that's sufficient to comfort markets, then markets will start looking through <coughs> what is probably going to be a two-quarter shock to global growth. Mm-hmm. So I think global growth will be negative for the next two quarters, uh, you'll get a technical recession. Um, but I think then activity will rebound quite quickly. We track real-time traffic data (coughs) in China, um, city by city, and traffic congestion levels in places like Shenzhen Shenzhen,
0: Mm
1: (coughs) are about 80 to 90% of normal levels. Yeah, so I think the Chinese supply chain is coming back online quickly, and I think within a month, they'll be kind of at capacity. Um, I think the other thing that we focused on is the fatality rate. (coughs) People have talked about 2.5%, 3.5%. Outside of Hubei, in mainland China, it's currently Mm -hmm. 0.8%. Globally, it's Um, (coughs) 1.6%. Outside of China, uh, in Korea, it's 0.6% but we're not measuring the true number of infections. So our view is the fatality rate will be um, substantially below 0.5.
0: And And how does that compare to a bad, or a particularly bad year or strain of flu?
1: Yeah, H1N1 is about uh, 0.5. Yeah, okay. So that's similar to the swine flu. Um, And I think once the community gets its head around that this is probably somewhere between a one in 200 and a one in 1,000 person probability um, of dying. And if you're at working age, I mean, it's pretty infinitesimally small. Yes. Because uh, that probability is across all people. If you're over the age of 80, <coughs> the current probability is about 15%, mm-hmm. um, about 9% over the age of 70. But if you're working age, it's kind of you know, extremely unlikely. So I think once we get our heads around that, you'll see communities move to mitigation and not actually try and contain too aggressively. And I think that um, as we move into the summer months, you also see the flu, or sorry, um, uh, COVID-19 start to dissipate. We haven't really seen it spread yet in any warm climate. Excuse me. Singapore, (coughs) they had a few. Singapore has um, slightly north north of 100 cases but they've had no deaths. And notwithstanding it's <clears throat> got a massive Chinese population and, and it's very high density, um, they've really been able to contain it, as has Hong Kong um, and Thailand, interestingly. So yeah, I think Singapore's very, very interesting because you would expect it, you know, all things being equal, um, them to struggle, but they've done a good job. And if people see this as an opportunity <coughs> to buy some assets
0: um, at discounted prices, um, when, when would you believe is it is a likely time for people to start entering into those positions, do you think?
1: Um, I think um, you're going to see, I'm just looking at the markets again now. Um, <clears throat> I think you've seen people fading it really in the last few sessions. We've probably spent about $450 million net buying bonds over the last few sessions. Um, and you know, U.S. equities are net up about six percent, five or six percent, um, from uh, the um, uh, from like after the Saturday uh, statement by Jay Powell that they were going to act aggressively. I thought the market reaction to Jay Powell was a little silly because the U.S. equity market was up <clears throat> for an hour after the Fed cut, and then he gave a pretty poor press conference. And the market kind of crapped itself down 3.5%. But yeah, it was up 4.2% um, overnight. So I think there's a lot of fragility in markets. But <coughs> I really think you're going to see uh, the central banks and the treasuries cauterize this. And markets will look through it.
0: And in Australia, do we see much fiscal policy uh, boost to the economy? Will the government be prepared to go into an election with, with
1: a deficit? I think they will be, um, I think they also back themselves to bounce mm-hmm. uh, before the election back into the black. But <coughs> I think uh, you'll see a solid uh, a solid stimulus, so single digit billions. Uh, it won't be a token stimulus, because I think this is, you know, this is exactly why you go from a balanced budget to a deficit. They were basically in surplus, um, and uh, it's precisely for these sorts of emergencies that you kind of bring out the fiscal guns.
0: Excellent. Well, moving along, pushing <laughs> that to a side, you've written recently about the state of the Australian housing market and we, we couldn't be Australians without talking about the Australian housing market.
1: Um, some of your views have been quite forthright. Do you want to talk us through those? Well, we got the correction right. So in 17, I said house prices would fall by 10%. They fell by, I think, about uh, 11 So we picked that perfectly and we also got the bull market preceding that between 2013 and 2017 exactly right. And then... When prices were still falling uh, in April two thousand and nineteen, I said I think the bust will be over, and the housing market will rise by ten percent over the twelve months following the second RBA rate cut, and that's exactly what it's done. So we've had you know national prices up eleven percent now, and um, I think um, <coughs> we'll see prices rise by. Uh, Prior to the recent RBA rate cut, I said twenty percent this cycle, and I think uh, it's more likely to be twenty to thirty percent. So I'm very, very bullish on Aussie housing.
0: Over what period?
1: Um, well, over this cycle. So I would yes. say over the next you know, few years. Okay. Um, but at least, <coughs> you know, I guess you know we're already up circa eleven. And what's driving growth. that in your eyes, Chris? So I would say over the next two to three years, we're at least uh, another ten to twenty percent of capital gains. Uh, what's clearly rates? It's all about mortgage rates. Yes. And I think on an asset allocation basis, people are looking at, you know, their equity volatility. <clears throat> uh, they're looking at cash rates. You know, TDs are going to be um, probably <clears throat> around one and a quarter percent. So they need income, and I think uh, uh, housing has been pretty resilient. I do think there's going to be the mother of all corrections. When we next have uh, an inflation cycle, so I think Aussie houses house prices will fall, uh, you know, twenty to forty percent. But I think uh, you want to be long housing right now. I certainly am. Mm -hmm.
0: And and what do you think causes that next mother of all recessions? And an inflation cycle. Yeah. So we see, you know, the US. There's no real sign of inflation in the system anyway. That's (coughs) the conundrum in all of this, and the expansionary policy and the QE that
1: you know, inflation and wage push hasn't presented itself? Well, we've seen pretty clear, consistent wage gains in the US since 2012. So US wage inflation is running just below 3% year on year. Um, and it peaked uh, prior to the GFC at 3.6%. It peaked in 20, February 2019, um, US wage inflation at 3.4%. So we absolutely have seen wage inflation. Um, US inflation, is seeing, uh, depending on which measure you look at, the, <coughs> you know, the common core CPI measures are sitting around two percent. The Fed's preferred measure is about one point six percent. But you know, there's inflation. It's just not running hot. But I think that as central banks squeeze whatever labour capacity is left out of the system, you'll get more and more wage inflation. Uh, and nobody's worried about inflation. I mean, the RBA. I spoke to the RBI recently about this they're not worried about inflation. So we're just going to see rate cuts, QE. And in the same way that rate cuts and QE manufacture asset price inflation, they absolutely can manufacture normal inflation. It'll come. When it comes, (coughs) it could be a big problem. Uh, I think particularly for Aussie housing, because we're highly levered. Um, We're only used to servicing very low rates. Um, But that might be three to seven years away.
0: Okay, and turning to a different asset class and credit, and uh, as the banks have responded to changes in regulation uh, globally following the GFC and the Baal rules and also the Royal Commission here in Australia, some of those banks have tightened up some of their practices and lending has become tighter. So there's been opportunities for non-bank lenders to step in and some of those are getting their funding from investors providing um, capital on the basis that they'll get five, six, seven, eight, 10% back yeah. on their lending. Um, where do you see that ending, or how do you see that playing out?
1: Um, well, I think, I think globally, uh, what we've seen is a huge increase in lending outside of banking systems. So in the US, you've got like a, something called the leveraged loan market, <coughs> and these are companies that can't borrow from banks and they can't borrow from the low-cost investment grade market. So it's kind of like subprime uh, corporate loans. And I think the catalyst for the next GFC (coughs) is probably going to be a subprime corporate lending crisis Mm -hmm. uh, in the US. But also, we're seeing here in Australia, super funds are diving into um, private credit, so lending to companies outside of the banks. Um, I think there are some really, really good private credit lenders here in Australia, like Metrix, mm-hmm. um, that really know what they're doing. <coughs> Part but, of the stable now. Yeah, well, they're a stable mate. My mum, uh, who's a co-client, I think, uh, mm-hmm. invests with uh, Metrics. I've been giving, uh, as you probably know, the LIC, LIT space a bit of a hard time. and Yes. The, the Metrics guys probably don't appreciate that. <laughs> uh, not that they would have ever received, said anything to me, but... Um, <clears throat> but uh, I think you know, in private credit, there are good opportunities, um, both for businesses and for investors. You're seeing some great new you know, smaller banks like Judo uh, come out. And so there are opportunities, but there are also threats. So it's definitely the case that the banks are limited in what they can lend. Um, so <clears throat> they can't. it's hard for a bank to provide a long-term loan to a business where other non-bank lenders can. The uh, flip side of that kind of opportunity is that you want to make sure the non-bank lender has the credit expertise to make those loans, um, has multi-cycle expertise. We're seeing a lot of small business lending from new startups where they don't have credit expertise. Uh, You're probably going to see a lot of residential mortgage non-banks come to market um, that are new players that again, (coughs) don't have multi-cycle expertise. So we do a lot of due diligence on this non-bank space looking at non-bank home loan lenders and non-bank um, SME and corporate lenders. And I think we've only ever invested with one in eight years because generally the credit quality of the non-banks is abysmal. It is really shit compared to the banks. <coughs> As an investor in bank debt, one of the things that's fantastic is, you know the banks are so heavily regulated and they're so risk-averse and so conservative and they've got so many people in compliance governance and risk management when it comes to credit quality, they're as pure as driven snow. That's why I like, why I love holding bank bonds, because they're never going to default in their senior bonds and they're implicitly government guaranteed. Whereas if you're buying <coughs> home loans off a non-bank lender, um, either through a mortgage trust or an RMBS issue, um, or you know, securitized corporate loans, then you, know, you haven't got that oversight and that regulatory discipline. And these guys are generally trying to grow as quickly as possible. <clears throat> they're trying to raise money from investors, and they're trying to um, grow their FUM or grow their loan books, and that basically, you know, encourages looser lending standards. Whereas a bank, yes, it's trying to grow, but it's trying to grow within incredibly defined credit and risk criteria. I can't, like, I deal with the bank CEOs, the um, major bank CEOs. <coughs> CFOs and treasurers all the time. And those guys are world-class when it comes to risk management. Yeah, you know, the fact that <coughs> there's all there's been this wave of re-regulation of banks has been very bad for bank shareholders. So that's why their returns on equity have been falling. But the, it's been fantastic for bank hybrid and bondholders because it means the probability of losing money is much lower. Today, in 20, um 20 than when it was in say 2007. So to give you an example, CBA's (coughs) equity ratio on its balance sheet was um, about 5%. So it was levered about 20 uh, times in 2007, whereas today its equity ratio is 12.2% in risk-weighted terms. So it's levered less than 10 times. (coughs) So CBA has more than halved its balance sheet leverage and it's also got out of all its non-core businesses. And today it's just this, you know, too big to fail, completely bulletproof uh, behemoth from a credit point of view. Loan um, lender. Yeah, and business lender. But what that's meant has been that its return on equity for shelters has fallen from 19% mm-hmm. in 2015 to around, <clears throat> you know, 12 to 13% today. It's still a great ROE for its risk, but you know, that's why it's not trading at three times book value because its cost of equity you know, is probably high single digits. So it's good. good news for the hybrid holders. The subordinated bondholders, the senior bondholders, the secured covered bondholders, you know, CBA RMBS investors, yeah. So we invest up and down CBA's capital stack very actively. We'd be the most active investor <coughs> in major bank senior bonds in Australia. Um, we're very acti- active in the tier two subordinated debt we'd be the most active investor in the hybrid market uh, and we're very active, active in the AAA RMBS market.
0: Turning that, given that the income fund, one of the main funds used by many of our clients, um, what sort of outlook do you have for that going forward from an income perspective with, with these volatility in markets at the moment? Yes,
1: yeah, so I think in the 12 months to January, if I'm not mistaken, we did about um, 3% net of fees that's a cash plus product. It sits in FE Analytics Cash Enhanced Universe. Um, and the average credit rating in that portfolio is um, about AA minus. Uh, its current cash weight is, uh, or as of last reporting date, was about 20%. Um, <coughs> very conservatively positioned as at the last reporting date. So we net sold about $700 million of bonds in January. So we, we shed a lot of risk in January. Uh, we lifted our average credit rating from the A-band to the double band um, And we also were a seller of uh, things like subordinated bonds. So we've been very well positioned to capitalise on the current dislocation. Um, I think the return outlook is strong, um, particularly uh, as cash rates come down. Because as cash rates come down, you're getting less yield. Um, <coughs> but it also means if you can find cheap bonds, excuse me, that are mispriced, and that are paying too much credit spread. For every basis point of credit spread that you correctly predict compresses (coughs) back to your fair value target, you get more capital gain. So in this climate, it's actually easier to generate capital gains for our very active style than in the climate where yields are higher. You have something called positive convexity. Um, So for an alpha manager like us, where we're not looking at actually driving the yield of the portfolio, We're looking to find genuine mispricings where we can get capital gains on top of yield uh, and produce alpha, as it's known, um, in in terms of capital gains. Uh, It's a a really, um, I think, uh, attractive hitting zone.
0: of course, the risk of that is you achieve or suffer capital losses. Uh, against the yield
1: in times where spreads widen or, or things, yeah, that's right. You uh, can't, can't always get, run course. You can't always get it right, and you will have periods where spreads widen and you'll get a small mark-to-market loss. Um, <clears throat> but um, but yeah, through the cycle over any sort of you know, twelve to twenty-four month period, you almost always do better than just holding the bond to maturity or just naively investing in cash.
0: Chris, thank you. That's been very enlightening. Before I wrap things up, I can't help myself. I want to ask about uh, any of the feedback that you've got on your position and stance uh, on the LIC uh, debate or conversation
1: that you've been weighing in on. Yeah, um, listen, it's not so much about LICs and LITs, listed funds. It's just simply about whether financial advisors who are advising mums and dads um, should be able to take sales commissions from fund, from fund managers to push those products to their clients.
0: So people aren't familiar with this, they'd probably Um, I'll I'll give a summary and you can tell me where where my view or my position on it isn't right in that there's been a lot of legislation passed to clean up the advice industry and one of those is the banning of commissions that might (coughs) incentivise advisors to recommend one product over the other. Uh, The one thing that uh, was kind of missed in that was the placement of shares or stocks or hybrid securities that allowed stockbrokers effectively to be paid a (coughs) standing fee of one, one and a half, up to 3%, I want to say, um, to to sell those or market those or advise or recommend those to clients. So, in fact, there was many advisers or advice firms accepting and writing those. And even within banks, you'd, they'd be trawling through all the people with term deposits who would have gone from 5% down to one and a half percent, ringing up uh, Mrs Smith and saying, Mrs Smith, we know you've got a million dollars there on term deposit. Um, How about uh, you roll that into a hybrid security and you can get 4% income out of it, which sounds a lot better than the 1.75 we've just offered you to roll over. That's probably gone to 1.5 as of earlier this week for your three-month term deposit. Um, That's the argument, essentially.
1: (coughs) (coughs) Yeah, there's a bit of nuance there. Um, So stockbrokers have always been able to earn sales commissions on shares, bonds and hybrids that's the medium that companies use to raise capital. Around the world, however, financial advisors um, universally uh, have not been able to take selling commissions in recent years <coughs> for pushing investment products to their clients. Now, I don't think a financial advisor should take any commission on a share, a bond, a hybrid, or a managed fund uh, when they're recommending those products to their clients. And I think, you know, Coda agrees and... Um, I think eighty. the survey suggests 80% of all advisors agree, or thereabouts. Um, in 2012, the government came along and banned commissions on funds, not on shares, hybrids, um, or bonds, mm-hmm. but on managed funds. And then in 2014, the coalition gave an exemption uh, to people who listed their fund on the ASX through an LIC or LIT. And since that time, <clears throat> we've seen the listed investment company and trust space explode. It's more than doubled in size to $52 billion. And we've seen fund managers pay financial advisors um, up to $440 million of commissions since 2016 alone to push funds to their clients. And every fund manager on earth has been looking to exploit this loophole. Um, and I guess I've made the point that, you know, I think that whether the advisor is recommending an unlisted fund, an ETF (coughs) or an LIC, they should not receive a commission. And and as I mentioned, 80% of the industry agrees and the feedback's been fantastic. So to answer your question, um, I'd say 99% of advisors have said, really appreciate you speaking out, Chris. Really appreciate you taking a stand. (coughs) Um, I've definitely lost clients because of it. um, Brokers have tried to punish me We've had advisors who have tried to pull our funds uh, because they take kickbacks from fund managers to push those funds to their clients and they don't like me talking out about it. I've had lots of fund managers threaten me very aggressively. I've definitely been personally defamed quite aggressively. So the LIC industry, industry group, <coughs> uh, so the listed investment company lobby group, um, basically hired a guy to write articles and uh, paid him to personally attack me and. Um, but you know, more generally, they've hired lobbyists who are running around personally attacking me, saying you know, just outright lies. Things like, oh, Chris tried to get a listed investment company up and running and failed. <coughs> that is absolute categorical bullshit. We've never lifted a finger, we've never started a process to set up an LIC, but more um, importantly, I, I run the fastest growing active ETF in Australia, so we've, like, we've got over $700 million in that BetaShares HBID product and um, we have a, a proven ability to raise money on the ASX. So that's not in question. Um, and I was approached by <coughs> probably the top stock firm in Australia in December, a few months ago, to do an LRC. And we basically didn't um, progress that, we decided not to pursue it. So this is you know, just so many um, vested interests, and you know, this is a lot of money. We're talking about a $52 billion sector, that if the government bans the commissions on funds and puts those funds back into the same playing field that all other funds currently sit in, where commissions are banned, that is unlisted funds and ETFs, um, then those managers won't be able to raise money. Mm. Excuse me. um, One of the things, so the managers are out there running out about saying, oh, when we pay one and a half to 3% to advisors, so I think you know KKR have a listed fund, and they paid more than twenty million dollars in commissions to advisors to raise nine hundred and twenty-five million dollars. And some folks, not KKR, but some folks are running around saying, "Oh, these these selling fees, they don't influence you know what an advisor recommends." And that's obviously BS. Nobody believes this. Um, and the good guys running LICs, like Hamish Douglas from Magellan, has come out and said this is a huge problem. Paul Moore from um, uh, PM Capital, who runs two LICs, has said. This is a disaster. <clears throat> the conflicts of interest are huge. Um, the forager guys who run an have said, you know, these commissions need to be banned. Um, they all recognise that this is diabolical for the industry because what will happen is all fund managers, including myself, um, if they don't stop this practise, we'll all be forced to go into the ASX. <coughs> we'll all be forced to pay huge sales fees to push products through advisors to clients. Um, but even more importantly, uh, unconflicted advisors, and only about 17% of advisors take these fees, so uh, the 83% of advisors who don't take these fees, um, they don't get these huge commissions. So the 17% who do, will be able to lower their fees to clients, take the conflicted commissions from the fund manager, push the product down their client's throats. The clients end up with terrible advice, um, but what will happen is that the advisors will be able to um, grab massive market share from unconflicted advisors because they can effectively charge their advice for almost nothing mm. if they're getting enough of these commissions. Um, people ch- you know, people are sort of saying oh well the commission might only be $200 but the commission could be $200 for 200 clients. So it's something you're talking about you know potentially yep. on one deal an advisor could earn you know anywhere from you know, twenty to $60,000 depending on the size of the commission. So um, you know, and the other thing that the industry said was, oh, the equi- So seventy percent of all these listed investment companies and trusts, they end up listing at a dollar or two dollars. And they're trading it. They below and they that. trade below that net tangible asset number. About eighty <coughs> tra- percent trade below NTA, and the average discount to NTA is about nine percent. And the whole sector has performed poorly. Um, you know, we've run the numbers, including franking credits, and found that since um, the exemption was granted in twenty fourteen. Uh, in every year, by one, the sector underperformed the market by, on average, 2%. So you would have been much better going into uh, a passive ETF and just getting your market exposure that way. Um, But the other argument was, oh, well, the new high-yield funds. um, So these are funds typically investing in global high-yield or junk corporate bonds. um, They've all traded at a premium to NTA. And so for six to 12 months, I was saying, that's bullshit, they're investing in illiquid assets and the one thing we know about LICs and ITs is if you're investing in illiquid assets, every single illiquid LIC or LIT I've ever seen has had a huge problem with trading at a discount to NTA at some point in time. Um, but everyone said, no, no, Joy, you're wrong. The debt, the new debt LITs are safe. And look at how they're performing. <clears throat> and of course, we saw in February, you know, KKR traded at a 15% discount to NTA. Newberger Berman had to cancel a $750 million offer in February, because they were trading at a nine percent discount to NTA, and a whole bunch of these tra- uh, traded a big discount to NTA. Now, for a mum and dad that was told, <clears throat> "This is a very safe, well-diversified portfolio, and you know your TD is paying one and a half to two, and you're going to get you know four, five, or six, um, and there's not much risk," and suddenly you're staring down the barrel of uh, a fifteen percent loss. I mean, that's catastrophic. Mm. So. It's not that the fund managers are bad. I think pretty much all the fund managers th- that are in the LIC, LRT market, they're really, really good, very impressive managers who I respect and admire a lot. Um, I think what the key point is, we want financial advice to be unconflicted. We want mums and dads to be paying their advisors, not product floggers, <coughs> in the same way that you know an accountant or a lawyer is paid by their clients. Um, and we want the interest of the financial advisor to be perfectly aligned with the client. Um, and then we want, in the funds management industry, we want funds to raise money on the basis of their merits, not on you know, how large a commission they're paying to advisors.
0: Absolutely. Agree with you there. I think it's a wonderful way to uh, finish the podcast. As always, thank you for your views. You're never shy with them. Appreciate having you on the show. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting CodaCapital.com.